Today's episode is brought to you by Curve, a card and digital wallet service. You'll be hearing more about Curve later on, but for now, let's get into today's interview. I'm joined once again by Tian Yang, CEO of Variant Perception. Tian, great to have you here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Tian, so much I want to get into, but just you've been on the show before. Just remind people, Variant Perception, it's a macro research shop. What is your process? How do you go about analyzing the economy and markets? Uh, yeah, sure. So, you know, our research philosophy is this idea of man plus machine beats man or machine alone. So, you know, we spend a lot of our time trying to build models that work over different time horizons from uh, tactical trading models to you know, try and time the market over the next one to two months uh, through to cyclical models of the business cycle. So leave the indicators of growth of inflation, uh, you know, real-time recession models, they typically work over a kind of six to 12 month period and longer term structural models that tend to look at uh, the capital cycle, uh, capital flows from industries to industries, um, you know, demographics, down currency cycles. So those are more kind of three to five year uh, views. And then the ultimate, ultimately our job is to synthesize the output from these models. So you can marry up the cyclical with the structural and then use the tactical to help a bit with um, timing, kind of position entry to express themes. Uh, yeah, so you know, ho- hopefully that gives you a rough sense of how we think. Yeah, that's good. So longer term as well as shorter term. Let's stick to the next year. What's your, your base case for twenty twenty three? So I think I think the interesting thing is um, our recession models for the U.S. economy actually triggered at the end of twenty twenty two. So the way we define the recessions is we essentially built these. Uh, to predict in real time uh, the probability that any given month will be dated an official recession by the MBER. So obviously we know in practice MBER tends to date recessions with like you know a quite long lag, well after the fact. So we've essentially trained um, our models on the historical MBER dates using a, a combination of hard and soft data inputs to try and pin uh, point the start of recessions in real time. So as of now, the U.S. recession model is triggered. Uh, which joins basically Europe and China in recession territory as well. So obviously that, that sets us up for uh, a pretty risk-off environment. So, you know, obviously inflation going lower, growth going lower, you know, good for bonds. Um, so that's kind of um, the, the main base case going into the year. And in terms of the plan for how to buy back into risk assets, we've essentially set out a three-step process where usually the sequencing goes, you know, step one is policymakers panic, right? Things go bad, there's, there's stress, obvious stress somewhere that forces a policymaker panic. That's usually the first sign. And then that tends to, you know, around that policy panic is when you also get a lot of just um, reliable technical buy signals going off. And it's more about the breath. So, you know, we're tracking, you know, signals across, you know, single name sectors globally. So you, what you tend to see is a massive, you know, breath of buy signals going off, um, you know, in line with the kind of the stress. Uh, in the market or the economy. So that'll tend to be, uh, that'll tend to be point two. And then the, the third and final piece will usually be after you get the buy signals, after you get the initial policymaker easing, eventually liquidity growth lead indicators bottom out and start to turn up. Um, you know, our market bottom checklist models will start, you know, seeing more items checked off and the recession model recedes. And that'll be kind of the final all clear to kind of then go max long. So, you know, I think right now it's very risk off for the year. And the plan to get back in is basically contingent on one policymaker panic and then, you know, true selling exhaustion signals 
and then finally the kind of you know cyclical lead indicators turning off. So we're headed into a recession very quickly if we aren't in one already, and you have a short-term bearish outlook, but you have you have a plan for going going long uh, as the recession develops. I just want to ask you a question about a recession because. People started talking about a recession. I mean, some, some people always talk about a recession, right? But, um, you know, about maybe nine months ago, people started talking about a recession. And then you had two consecutive quarters of negative real GDP prints, which, you know, on, on Wikipedia and other places is kind of the technical definition of recession. So leading many to declare a recession. And, and I was convinced that, you know, we, we were in one. However, then the economy, uh, you know, in the third and fourth quarter rebounded uh, with extreme alacrity, you can say. And also a lot of that is just because inflation went down and, you know, nominal GDP was always positive, but inflation was so high during that, you know, Q1 and Q2. Um, so yeah, so now for example, so, so one, do you think we were in a recession at, at all in 2022? And then also, you know, now the Atlanta Fed's GDP now estimate is at 4.1% uh, quarter over quarter from I think Q3 to, to, to Q4 um, and 4% annualized GDP real GDP growth, that doesn't sound so recessionary to me. So what's the, um, the, the difference between your models and the, the Fed's models? Uh, yeah, sure. So I think uh, the key thing to think about is what are the very volatile components of GDP versus trying to extract the underlying trend. So I think when we're talking about recessions and you know, the, the things you want to worry about is when private consumption investment ultimately trend lower, right? And that's going to affect profits, that's going to affect kind of asset prices. The problem is the data's obviously, you know, had quite noisy uh, swings with inventories, with trade. And I think so from quarter to quarter, that tends to mess up the data quite a bit. So, for example, on something like the Atlanta Fed um, uh, GDP now, if you go in and strip out things like inventories and net trade, which, by the way, over the long run tends to just swing around zero. But if you look at things like private consumption investment, they swing around two and a half percent, which is obviously generally accepted trend rate of growth. If you strip that out, then, you know, the first half of last year, even on the, on the GDP now, wasn't a recession. And today the number's much lower, right? It's more like, you know, below two. And obviously it's still going to be volatile, but the trend is undeniably just going lower. So I think, uh, you know, it's important to bear in mind the, the specific method. It's not that the Atlanta Fed model isn't, is, is wrong per se. It's more the model was designed to predict GDP as printed, right? But GDP as printed has lots of these volatile components that isn't necessarily super helpful. Uh, in real time to give you a read, right? Plus, it's obviously GDP is a very heavily revised series anyway. So again, in real time, you can't really use it. Um, and, you know, it's it's not just that our models are somewhat bearish, right? A lot of the other regional uh, Federal Reserve Bank models are actually a lot more bearish than the Atlanta Fed, right? Like the St. Louis Fed models have like gone to zero, obviously. Um, you know, the Philly Fed, it's not as frequent, but, you know, they do projections, right? And that's, that's um, pretty bad as well. So it's more... It, it probably looks more like the Atlanta Fed models is a slight outlier just because, you know, it's got like a big boost from uh, predicted inventories, right? That's helping to boost the GDP number. So, yeah, so I, I would say that's that's probably why the divergence looks so egregious right now. But if you strip it out, the, the underlying slowdown uh, is still kind of in the data. Uh, to us, again, as I said, the model only triggered end of last year. So really, there wasn't a recession in 2022. Uh, but we think this is basically the beginning now, right? So this is when we're just about a zero. We're going below. That's essentially what we say is is about you know what, what this month is going to look like. Yeah, a, a lot of economic measures are so messed up 
if you measure them on a year over year basis because of, of COVID, like, uh, you know, personal income, because everyone was getting checks uh, to, to the unemployment rate to, to uh, um, you know, non-farm payroll, stuff like that. Um, so, okay. So you have a bearish case for 2023 on stocks, on risk assets. Um, one of those cases is because of the recession. Uh, what else? I know you do a lot of work on liquidity. Liquidity is very bad in 2022. Uh, is it still bad? And uh, how how you know negative a force is that for, for the market? And how do you measure liquidity? Important. Uh, yeah. So you know our excess liquidity measures are still a very bad level. So these are what we consider cyclical indicators for kind of the next six to twelve months. Uh, they're typically looking at global narrow money growth minus inflation minus real economic activity, right? So essentially it's saying how much money has been created system-wide that isn't really being used up for real activity or to support basic inflation and whatever is left over tends to support asset prices. So last year, obviously, you know, equities and bonds were down together. That, that usually uh, makes sense when like, excess equity goes very negative because there's just no money to support any asset prices. Um, as of right now, it's still uh, pretty negative. Um, but actually I would frame it a little bit differently in that, you know, when we, um, when you want to position the, the key is that to bear in mind the six months bearish outlook, but then you probably need to be slightly more tactical in terms of a- actual positioning around it. So the setup this year is more on a one month basis coming in is more a bear market rally makes sense. Cause you had quite strong, um, outflows, uh, in December, we had a bunch of buy signals go off on tech. Um, basically end of last year. And obviously with the inflation peak story, the initial focus in the market is probably going to be on peak inflation, peak Fed policy rates, and people trade that narrative to drag the flow up. But obviously as the data deteriorates more through Q1 into Q2, then the kind of um, kind of growth slowdown story will probably get a bit more prominence. And then I think equities, that's when you see the real big downside. But obviously, you know, falling inflation, falling growth, both are kind of going to be good for bonds. So I think that's why it's more clean, right now to think about expressing the risk of you by more going uh, being on bonds than it's necessarily just sticking with a short equity um, throughout the year. I think equities, you, you always gonna have to manage the, the bear market rally risks and you know that's going to involve a little bit more trading around uh, really. So, Okay, right. So we've got um, look, uh, uh, the, the chart that we're showing right now charts uh, liquidity in red advanced six months uh, relative to real GDP. So when liquidity goes up, GDP goes up uh, generally, not saying they're necessarily causing each other, but they're very correlated. Uh, I'm sorry, but so so central banks uh, do quantitative easing. They expand their balance sheet, putting cash bank reserves into the system that, that, that moves up liquidity. And then liquidity goes down when they do quantitative tightening as many central banks, including the Fed are doing now. So what is in uh, your liquidity measure other than QE versus QT. Well, actually, that's not a measure. By the way, I think it's the chart below uh, what you share on the screen. I think when we talk about excess liquidity, it's just, um, you know, things like central banks only go in implicitly. Yeah, that's the one. So the, the key point is that we live in a fiat money system, right? Where money creation is not just the role of central banks. You know, commercial banks have a big part to play in that. And so if you're only watching central banks, you're missing the impact uh, that commercial banks can have on credit creation. Right. And so oftentimes when you, you know, when you learn about money in the textbooks originally, it's this idea of fractional, fractional banking, you know, like central banks control reserves and that affects credit creation. Right. Whereas obviously in practice, it's not a binding constraint and it's a lot more 
you know, it, it just happens out, a lot of times can be independent of central banks, right? Central banks are affecting animal spirits. So that's why I think for us, we measure it essentially M1 or equivalent level, right? So then you capture both demand deposits and currency in circulation, right? And that gives you a, a broader sense of um, the right kind of definition of money as it affects kind of future uh, future activity and future um, asset price performance, right? You know, I think it's a very important point here just to know, you know, when people talk about how to measure money, I think there's a sweet spot where, for example, people look at M2 to GDP, right? But M2 includes a lot of savings deposits. And so if savings deposits goes up, potentially that drives M2 up. But savings deposits going up isn't necessarily bullish, right? Because people are parking money away in kind of, you know, longer term, you know, locked up money and it's not available to spend. Whereas if you track narrow money, it's basically just demand deposits and cash, right? Like generally that doesn't go up unless there's a lot of activity going on and people want to do something with the money. And then once the activity stops, you know, that, that demand deposit falls and then, you know, you know, then they can save it or do whatever else that they want. So I think there's a sweet spot where if you, you know, we want to define liquidity as it pertains to kind of forward looking, um, asset prices and forward looking activity, right? And if you just do central bank balance sheets, sometimes you'll miss the, the impact that, uh, commercial banks will have have on money creation and animal spirits, right? Like this is why the classic chart fair balance sheet against S&P worked up until whenever it was 2016, right? And it just, it diverges because you, you know, you're missing some of the other pieces of liquidity, really. Right. Okay. Uh, so Tian, you've got so much fascinating stuff and I, I want to, you know, the audience is going to love all your stuff. I want to smack it into an hour, but I really, I really just can't help myself uh, talking about liquidity. Isn't it, I know with M2, M2 explodes higher when there's quantitative easing because even though the monetary base, Federal Reserve money, is not counted at M2, what they do is the Fed buys a bond from JP Morgan and then JP Morgan to restore the bond that it now does not have, it buys a bond from me or buy from you. And then suddenly I have a bond and I don't have bank, uh, excuse, excuse me, now I, I don't have a bond and I have deposits, right? So isn't it pretty uh, similar because... Because like the Fed is buying bonds from banks, banks buy bonds from you, so now you have more money, and that yeah. doesn't doesn't that come up of an M one or 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 does yeah, that M one will react as well, right? So yeah, yeah. obviously, if you go plot the series, M one will react, but the one times when there is a divergence, that's when like the M one data is going to be a bit more reliable. I think even the the conference board themselves have done studies, so I think like you know thirty forty years ago when they first start building leading economic indicators, M2 was included as one of the leading indicators. And over time, they've revised it out as well. So now it is only, um, you know, more narrow definitions of money that that included. All right. Well, so n now let's not bury the lead. Let's look at uh, these variant perceptions, countries, uh, LEI, liquidity indicator, something like that. Euro area in gray, very negative. China, negative. U.S., Negative, but not as negative. So it doesn't look like there's anywhere that's safe where there is is liquidity. Um, yeah, just just break that down. Uh, why why is liquidity falling in, in different regions, and and how might that differ? And also, do you think that Chinese liquidity will go back? As, as many, including people who invest in Chinese stocks, because the stock market is is you know surging now, uh, are, are expecting that China will restore liquidity. Uh, well, yeah. So. So what you got up here is the, the growth, uh, country lead indicators. So, uh, you know, as you suggest, the growth outlook, um, you know, across the board is, is pretty poor right now. Um, from a liquidity point of view, because money is going to flow across borders, right? There's no, you know, it's very hard to pinpoint exactly, 
um, where the, the marginal benefit is going to be. But so you, I think we, we try and think about it as, a, as more of a global concept. Hence, you know, the, the chart you showed before with, with global uh, excess equity. Um, with China specifically, clearly you do see uh, the policy impulse has shifted and turned um, positive. And, you know, it's been shifting up since kind of, well, what, Q3, Q4 is already shifting up. Um, but the key thing to note um, right now is that the kind of negative drag from U.S., policy impulse it is so negative it's, it's going to you know it's currently overwhelming the Chinese uh, indicator right now so the net message is yes China domestically that's clearly going to be a rebound right like if you reopen it's obviously going to you know you, you'll get um, kind of the a little bit of the revenge consumption all those things but in aggregate the global kind of stimulus pool the global liquidity pool at, on based on all the data is still shrinking so that's why I would frame it as China isn't going to help support global reflation in the, in the way it did in 2009-10, when, you know, the, the magnitude of the impulse was just so much bigger uh, back then. Uh, and even even today, if you think about this narrative, this um, reopening, and you look at the US experience, obviously, what happened was, yes, people spent a lot more money, but there was obviously a lot of inflation as well. So in real terms, not all categories of expenditures managed to get back up and go back above trend, right? A lot of things took a while to come back to trend. It's really only, I think, in things like clothing, uh, in like restaurants, hotels, right? Those are where, you know, you, you get a lot more bang for the buck, where the excess savings um, come out and get spent. So it's not going to be like a across the board um, kind of kind of relief for everything, right? So in China, I think it's going it's, it's to be a lot more important to focus in on, on segments that are behind, still below trend, where you know, the marginal savings can be unlocked, right? Durable goods. Clothing and then hotels and accommodations probably those are going to be more where the you know you'll see the up moves, right? And so your view of liquidity that it's low and in many areas getting even worse that informs your asset allocation decision that risk assets will perform poorly, uh, high beta will underperform low beta, stocks will underperform bonds. Uh, we can get back to liquidity, but now let's talk about the business cycle and the recession. Let's stick to the U.S. We can move on to, to Europe and China. Uh, so I think recession is defined as like a uh, broad-based decline in uh, economic measures of spending, investment, production, employment. Many of those, uh, if not all of those, are pretty strong in the U.S. now, particularly the labor market. I mean, the unemployment rate is at 3.5%. Uh, which areas of those, those, those four, or you can add others, uh, of the economy do you think will be the first to be uh, very weak, so much so that, you know, people who aren't looking at leading indicators but are actually looking at like hard real-time data um will 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 will, will note it uh well it's already happened right housing and manufacturing are the two um obviously manufacturing is still the more leading part of manufacturing it's the you know the surveys as some surveys so forth is the kind right like the the coincident data is just about peaking um but yeah housing manufacturing to start with but but even even in things like you know, labor markets, right? Like the, the more mo leading parts of labor markets already are moving. If you look at temporary workers, uh, you know, that's kind of declined back to zero. Job openings rolling over, right? There's a lot of the leading parts of the even labor market data tells you, uh, you know, the, the stress is coming. Um, you know, even on the, for the U.S. consumer, right? The whole narrative, there's a bunch of excess consumer savings. So the U.S. consumer is fine. Again, you know, if you look at the more, you know, like the high frequency data, right? The household poll survey from the Census Bureau, right? Like across the income spectrum, all the way up to like a hundred thousand uh, dollars household income. There's a, there's, you know, you can see, right? There's, there's rising 
um, kind of difficulty paying bills. So what I would say is actually the behavior of the data is in line with what it should look like on the eve of the at the beginning of the recession, right? Because we're not talking about the depths of recession here, right? If when you're in the depths, that's when the line is obviously very, very low. And that's usually obviously when policy easing is probably already kicked in. And that's kind of the contrarian bias signal, right? Today is more like when you're just crossing below zero, that this is kind of what it should look like, where it's pretty much across the board. It's all the leading parts in the leading indicators across most economy have gone to bad territory. The coincident data is still fine, but it's basically been, you know, going sideways or roll, started rolling over. And then obviously in the, you know, through Q1, Q2, as data is released because of the lags, presumably by March, it'll be a lot, you know, you start seeing a bit more obvious signs of broader kind of data stress, right? That, that will be the, the sequencing. Right. So that, that chart that we were showing earlier is the Census Bureau of percentage of survey respondents having difficulty to, to, to pay expenses by income paints a very different picture of the you know strong consumer balance sheet narrative that was supported by, you know, the very high amount of deposits in bank accounts. Um, not even necessarily, you know, people with you know $10,000, but, but pe people with, you know, $100, thousands of dollars. Um, now let's look at the ISM manufacturing, which is a you know, measure of manufacturing activity. Above 50 indicates growth. A, a high of 60 means business is booming. Uh, below 50 indicates contraction. A, you know, 45 or 40 indicates a, a recession. Um, so that, that's in the black line. Now manufacturing is at, what, 49? And also, we uh, since this report from Very Perception was released... Uh, I think we had a services that was just over 49, indicating that services are contracting too. So yeah, explain that, uh, the ISM manufacturing in black, and then explain what it leads, the, the durable goods inventories, uh, X-Transport, as well as the, the spending chart that you have on the left. Uh, yeah, sure. So I think this is a, a pretty intuitive relationship when you think about the inventory cycle, right? Or, you know, sometimes we call it the bullwhip effect. So ultimately... If you get a huge buildup in inventories where businesses obviously, you know, during COVID over ordered because they wanted to secure their, you know, that, their, their place in the queue of the factory, they over ordered, got delivered all the stuff they thought they were going to sell in anticipation of higher demand. But if that demand doesn't materialize, suddenly they sound too much inventory. That's going to be discounting. Right. And obviously we saw a lot of that with, um, us retailers in the second half of last year. So if you aggregate up the measures of inventories, then it's pretty intuitive that it actually leads future manufacturing activity. So the red line there, you can see the right-hand axis is inverted. So the red line going down basically means there was a surging inventories last year. So because there was a surging inventories, typically that will lead with a lag to slower manufacturing activity in the future, mm. right? Because there's inventory that needs to be digested. And so, uh, you know, that, that's- Oh, yes. Just, so, yeah. Sorry. So the, uh, the red line has an inverted y-axis so that when it's down on the screen, that indicates inventories are actually going up. So in inventories were increasing by 10%. And that makes sense. You see companies like Lululemon, not to pick on them, but you know, they, their inventories went up. I'm not going to say over hundred percent, but it was very, a very high percentage, um, relative to 2021 because, oh my God, it stuff is flying off the shelves. We don't have enough stuff. Now they have enough stuff and the wow. amount of stuff that they have has exceeded the amount of actual consumer demand. So, so this is a classic bullwhip effect, right? Like, and obviously it's called that because you get that whip action at the end. And it was massively exacerbated by COVID. So COVID is causing the mother of all bullwhip effects in terms of sequencing, right? Because during COVID, when, you know, it's only Chinese factories open whenever it was in 2020, and you put in your normal order for, I don't know, 100 pairs or whatever, yoga pants, right? And they tell you, oh, we, we can only do 50 pairs for you. 
So what do you do? You order 200 thinking you'll get 100. And now you've got 200 pairs, right? You'll get these exaggerated uh, ball whip effects as a result of kind of the over-ordering, over-ordering um, that, that COVID call. So that's why I think the, the inventory cycles, um, you know, qu- quite a big risk this time in terms of sequential step down in growth. That's probably isn't going to be anticipated. Right. Okay. So, uh, we've got two parts of your sort of trifecta of bearish indicators. One part liquidity. We talked about that. It's bad and getting worse. One part is recession. You think a recession has already started. And if it hasn't, it's going to start you know, momentarily. The third factor, let's talk about the fed and interest rates, uh, and the, the, the terminal rates. Uh, how does this play into your perspective? Uh, yeah. So, you know, obviously with these things, you need an anchor to start somewhere. For us, the anchor for the analysis has always been uh, the idea that the Fed has never stopped their hiking cycle until the Fed funds rate is above the trailing year-on-year CPI historically, right? And it seems a pretty intuitive thing uh, to us to at least have as an initial anchor. So, you know, on, on current kind of projections for where the month-on-month CPI is going versus what's discounting the Fed funds curve, you know, you're basically going to get to like March, April, Right. The Fed, the Fed's going to, the Fed funds will get to basically five or five, five point two five, somewhere in that range. Right. And then the year on year CPI core and headline should be below that by kind of April, um, by April or May. So the idea is that that's at least kind of the initial target point for when the Fed camp, that's kind of the earliest they can go on pause essentially. And then from then, obviously we'll need to see how quickly inflation can come off, uh, for the Fed to be able to pivot and. On most of our models, if we think the recession started, but the Fed keeps hiking into the recession, then presumably by by kind of May, uh, there'll be a, a bit more evidence of actual economic stress, and there'll actually probably be some room for the Fed to to actually ease a little bit. Right? I think that's the um, that's basically the the, the current um, I would say the, the current kind of game plan. Um, you know, we'll see. Obviously, we're having- you're saying, and this, this is a great point. I think uh, Stanley Druckenmiller has has also made it that. Uh, it's never happened that the Federal Reserve has pivoted without the Fed funds rate going above CPI. Right now, CPI uh, is, um, that, six and is the headline figure is 6.5%. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. We're recording on the day CPI came out. Um, so the Fed will either have to hike above, uh, to 6.5% or above it, which I imagine would be disastrous for equity prices. Not necessarily, but, but probably. Um, or inflation has to fall to wherever the Fed has. So if the Fed peaks at 4.75% or 5%, Inflation will have to fall fall there. So this uh, perception that oh the Fed's going to s- stop at four point seven five percent that that's only going to happen if inflation falls to four point seven five percent. So and and that might take a while, you know. Yeah. So there's two moving parts, right? But I think on on, on current trends, you're you're going to get there by May, you know, plus or minus a month uh, by next year. So um, May twenty twenty three. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. the key point right now is on inflation. Again, this is where I think the time horizon matters a lot, where I talked about a cyclical six to 12 month horizon, the structural. So I think on the structural horizon, we still think there'll be a higher equilibrium level of rates and inflation, right? Five years out. But if you're talking next six to 12 months, it's pretty unambiguous that every lead indicator of inflation, both demand and supply side has rolled over very sharply, right? So on a cyclical basis, this like an overwhelming amount of evidence across most of the, you know, piece of inflation, that inflation is going to come off. Um, you know, obviously the, 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 the one area of divergence remains housing. Um, but I think even Pam himself made some references to how it's, you know, the, it's not being accounted for correctly. I think, you know, it was in the Brookings, um, one of his Brookings speeches or something. So, 
Um, yeah, so I, you know, if whether you're looking at looking at it from a supply chain point of view, you know, look at look at it from like a food price, energy price, right? Because obviously, ultimately, inflation is the only number. You look at it from a demand point of view, it's, it's all pretty much rolling over. So I think it's more converging with inflation coming down while the Fed slows down its pace of hikes, right? And then it meets. Hey there, I hope you're enjoying today's show. Just wanted to let you know that this episode is sponsored by Curve, a payment service that gives you power over your finances. The way it works is that Curve is an extra layer on top of your credit and debit cards that gives you additional cash back on the rewards that you're already earning. Curve Card has no foreign transaction fees and you can choose to earn your rewards in crypto. You don't have to, but you have the option. CurveCard also has a feature called Go Back in Time, where you can retroactively change the card used to buy an item after you made the purchase, up to 30 days after, actually. A key concept in finance is optionality. When you have the option to do something, but you don't have to do something, this can be very valuable in finance as well as life. And optionality is exactly what Curve gives you to do with your wallet. So check out Curve to get $20 once you've downloaded the app and made your first transaction. CurveCard is powered by Hatch Bank. Terms and conditions apply. Now, let's get back to the interview. Now, let's talk about inflation. How rapidly do you think inflation will fall? And um, yeah, I know a big factor of disinflation over the past six months has been energy. You know, do you expect that to continue, or is that kind of just luck? That oh, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty warm in the winter uh, in in Europe uh, this year. And then also shelter. Uh, just how lagging is that? You know, it's going up. 0.8% every single month. Um, and you know the, the way that that's calculated may suggest that it will continue to advance even if the underlying rent doesn't go. And uh, you know what I'm talking about. Um, yeah, so what do you think about inflation? Yeah, so obviously any given month, is, is, is gonna, the number is going to be volatile. But as I said, it's, you know, it's pretty unequivocal. And obviously this is a report from December, right? So you know, we've had an, a, some more updates and all the lines have kept going lower. So I think it's pretty unequivocal inflation is so quite a lot. Um, like, I, like I said, in terms of the, the month on month, it's probably not going to go much more than 0.3 a month, right? So that analyzes to 3.6. Um, as, obviously this is going to be somewhat contingent on our recession views. And clearly we think that we're going to recession. That, and so that's why you, you see even on the slide, right? Why we think ultimately the recession is going to be the demand destruction plus the relief from supply chains. That's kind of the, the core setup of, um, for the inflation outlook. Now, the complicating factors will be how much of an inflationary impulse China does uh, create, um, depending on how, how aggressive that easing becomes, right? But so that's the, that's the one area of path dependence where you kind of have to observe a little bit. Clearly, the how, given how fast and disorderly China's reopening was, there is, you know, you know, the, the, the range of potential policy options suddenly seems a lot wider, right? Than it did a few months ago. So it's not out of the question. They could just really stimulate super aggressively, right? Cause clearly something's happened, right? That they can't stick to all she signature policy. So yeah. And, and just about China, are you noticing any economic indicators? You know, not an article saying some Chinese official of the Chinese Communist Party whispered this to some journalist, you know, not that, but actual a yield, a price, something like that, um, that indicates that reflation within China is is on the way. One thing I'll say is the price of copper. You know, people have been saying very bearish copper since June, and it was right for a while as the economy was slowing. But the price of copper has you know ex- exploded higher over the past month or so. Uh, not 
not not to the highs of, of early 2022, but uh, pretty close. And that to me say may say, hey, you know, Ch- China could uh, that's, that's a sign of economic strength. So is it? Do you, do you are you noticing any signs of economic strength uh, in your data that you can attribute to the Chinese reopening and the Chinese perhaps restoration of liquidity? Uh, so I think in terms of hard economic data, not yet, because obviously these things take time to feed through, right? It's going to be slightly lagging if it's a purely policy-driven thing. But yeah, in terms of market prices, you know, obviously you mentioned the commodity rebound, um, you know, things like Chinese big bank performance relative to the index, that that's typically led out of a lot of the big previous bear markets. And that, that has, um, so Chinese banks are basically led on the way up. Uh, so yeah, there's, there's a few things there, but, you know, I think that the concern the concern I would have is if you look at a lot of the, the flow proxies we have, um, you know, this really needs to be like a, a legit policy shift, right? Like it, there's, it's, it's quite a lot of speculative flows. Like on our flow proxies, the amount of cumulative buying is basically back to where it was in July and August of last year, right? That was like the last time when it was a, like the, you know, China's bottom and people got back to that level. So right now yeah. we're at an interesting tactical point and it's really dependent on policy follow through. Now, I just think, I just think it could happen. It's just more the distribution of outcomes a lot wider, right? Like, I don't think anyone would have thought it would be this disorderly where every signature she policy is kind of suddenly gone. So that suddenly opens up the possibility that, you know, if they don't, if they're not hitting real estate so hard, you know, they suddenly want to give tech room. Maybe they're open to doing massive stimulus, right? There might be a chance of going something more akin to like a 2016, 2009 style big easing of liquidity, in which case then obviously you, you'll get all the confirmation, right? And you'll be correct, uh, but I would say that that's kind of what we're looking for um, to kind of sustain sustain um, sustain the rally. Okay, thanks. Now let's move on to your asset allocation. And if it's okay with you, can we can we show this uh, sort of checklist um, just of what you think should be underweight, neutral, and and overweight? So let's start with the underweight section of you should be underweight equities and underweight U.S. high yield uh, credit. Why underweight? And, you know, I guess the, the mathematical model-based approach is, oh, well, my model says it and my model is right, you know, 88% of the time. But if I, if I were to ask you, you know, if you're right and in a year equity prices and, and high-yield credit has underperformed the less risky things that you recommend to be overweight, like cash, um, why do you think you will have been right? Is it because earnings actually went down? Is it because uh, input costs, labor costs went up and, and the top line didn't go up by enough? Is it because interest rates are uh, so much higher so that the value of future cash flows is worth less on a discounted basis? All of the above. Uh, yeah, like why, why are you underweight U.S. equities? Uh, well, firstly, it's, it's uh, equities relative to bonds. So if you want a really, really simple rule of uh, rule of thumb. If you just look at where yields are, where bond yields are relative to earnings yields, and you look at that over, you know, over a very long period, that tends to lead kind of relative performance. So obviously when you, when yields back up enough and equity valuations don't come out as much, that, that relative value already helps you in terms of which way you tilt. But for equity specifically, um, you know, what the work we've done on earnings recession is, is that historically earnings recessions don't matter unless they're part of a broader general economy-wide recession. So the, the idea is that if you don't get a economy-wide recession, then when earnings go negative, that's the contrarian sign to buy, right? The only time you get a cascade fall in earnings or the cascade kind of knock-on effects is when earnings fall and it's part of the economy-wide recession because that's what sets off the feedback loops. And so- yeah, Sorry, what's an example of a time where earnings fell, but the economy didn't fall, so it was a buying opportunity? 
uh, I think 2018, like, I think it was, uh, I think it got close. Um, yeah, that, I, I, I can, I'll, I'll follow up with you afterward. I think there's, there's been, um, there's been quite a few historically where it just about goes negative over the past 50 years. And that's usually yeah. the high sign. But obviously a lot of times earnings collapse as part of a economy wide recession, right? And as we talked about economy wide recession is really about when there's positive feedback loops that start to kick in, right? Now, when all these job losses happen, but the job losses now lead to, you know, falling consumer spending. So suddenly corp- corporate earnings are worse. Suddenly now banks demand they, you know, have to pay more credit spreads, which then causes further stress, right? I think those are the, the feedback loops that cause that initial foil in earnings to turn into something bigger. Whereas normally, if you don't have those feedback loops kick in, then obviously the initial fall, you know, it, it'll just stop. So I think that that's why the, the risk is more tilted towards um, potentially a lot more of these cascade effects uh, that go on this year. And so, you know, if you just say finger in the air, right, typically equity is going to, you know, at the market bottom is kind of 15 times is normally when you would trade. Um, and you can apply like a 15 times to like what a forward earnings estimate should be. So right now, say like a 220 S&P. Right. So, you know, that gives you like a rough sense, right? If you buy 15 to, and they say, you say forward any estimates four to 200, that's like 3000 on S&P. Right. Um, so I, I would say, you know, when we don't think this is like a 2008 where, you know, the bank's going to go bust or anything like mm-hmm. that. Right. There's like the bank balance sheets are clearly a lot better, like structurally. Um, it's, it's kind of a different setup. And obviously you've already front run some of the bad news with, you know, crypto, with tech, you know, profitless tech, right? You've already seen a lot of deflating in kind of the higher duration assets. So, um, I think it's more about the fact that earnings might stay down and then the, the multiple people assigned stays down because it's a recession kind of environment, right? I think that that's more the, the outlook rather than think, thinking this is going to be, you know, uh, you know, that the central, you know, policymakers aren't going to come in and save, save the market eventually. Hmm. And how do you think about different sectors? As you alluded to, some of the biggest drawdowns in 2022 for stocks were in the technology sector, uh, high value, high valuation stocks, um, uh, profitless tech, tech stocks, stuff like that. Uh, if we are in a recession, do you expect that to continue? Because I feel like a lot of the reason that those stocks suffered so much is because interest rates rose up so much. But if we have a recession, I imagine, you know, we're, we're not getting the 6%. Um, and uh, then, then if, if you don't think that, uh, do you think they would outperform it? And who, which, which uh, sectors will suffer the worst? You know, you typically think of as, uh, you know, cyclical sectors like energy, financials, uh, sort of which, yeah, what's your, what's your sector outlook in terms of the best and, and the worst? Uh, so, so to your point, Again, this is where the time horizon matters a little bit. That's why I said earlier, if you're talking about a one month outlook, you can see a lot of things lined up for a, a short squeeze in tech. Right? Obviously, we've, we've already seen that in the first two weeks, but I mean, that, that could go for, you know, that could go for another few weeks, right? Where the, you know, the narrative will be, yeah, inflation's peaked, rates has peaked, these high duration things benefit. But obviously, the problem is when you look a year out and the economy is going worse and earnings do matter. And if earnings are going lower, then it's hard to justify kind of where you were trading previously. So I think for us overall, it's, it's a lot more of a defensive, uh, you know, we would probably prefer a lot more defensive, uh, you know, some of the more reasonably value staples. I mean, it's, it's a bit difficult, right? The, the, the challenge for equity investors in this environment is that quality names are generally expensive names, right? And that's, that, was, that was a problem last year, right? With a lot of these names uh, that got hit. So um, yeah, but 
broadly speaking, we'll say, you know, you want to hide out in more defensive uh, sectors, right? But it might be a little bit more, you need to look a little bit at sing single names. Um, the interesting phenomenon right now is actually, it's more of the large caps where, you know, things are looking a little bit more vulnerable. If you actually look outside, you know, the S&P 500, the, the biggest US names, and you look at the distribution of forward PEs, it's actually looking a lot closer to what a market bottom uh, would typically uh, look like, where there's already a, a huge cluster of things trading at like 10 times or, or lower. But it's more like... Yeah, so you got these fantastic yeah. charts. Yeah. What are we... So what are we looking at here? So uh, this basically shows you the distribution of forward PEs for single names at different key moments in the market, right? So the black line is basically what they look like at the 2009 bottom, and the gray line is the uh, the 2020 uh, bottom. So the point here is that usually at a major, major, you know, market bottom washout moment, you'll tend to see a huge cluster of stocks trading basically under 10 times PE. Right. And so yeah, uh, PE is price to earnings ratio. You know, if a company is worth a billion dollars and they make a uh, hundred million dollars in profit, they have a PE of 10. If Analysts think that they're going to make two hundred million dollars next year. They have a forward PE of five. Um, so yeah, that, and when when you're at a market bottom and things have sold off so much, it makes sense that a lot of stocks are trading at a forward PE of six. So yeah, yeah. and so you can see on the right hand chart that's got the Russell three thousand. So obviously it's capturing most of the market, and the distribution is a lot closer to what it looks like at the bottom, right? Whereas on the left hand chart, it's got the S and P, and you can see you know the red lines. Well, that was obviously December. It won't have changed that much. So you can see the distribution. You don't have that fat tail at the left, which you, you should expect to see if it was a genuine um, kind of washout bottom moment. So, you know, there's more relative value in probably small caps, international names, if you go and do the work and look, right? And those are probably like the valuations are low enough. You can hold it and kind of hold through. I think it's just more S&P, large cap names. I think that's where, you know, even though it was bad last year, you know, it, it it probably won't get better this year. Although during recessions and vicious bear markets, isn't it safe to say that small cap stocks and international stocks tend to underperform big cap tech stocks in America? Yeah, so I think this is the really interesting thing about the current environment where essentially, you know, essentially what we're doing is two aspects, right? One is you're trying to analyze what we would call fundamentals, right? That would be understanding the business cycle, understanding the earning cycle, understanding the capital cycle. And then the second piece is why I would probably say playing the game. And playing the game is all the trading stuff, right? Your trading tools, your flows, your positioning, you know, the crowding measures, you know, what are funds holding, right? So it's about balancing the two. And I think what a lot of what you're seeing right now is that from a playing the game point of view, there's certain areas that are very, very bombed out. That's probably got a lot less kind of um, selling that that's got less selling pressure, right? Because it's because it's been sold um, sold very hard already, right? So I think it's more the playing the game aspect of the market that that's leading you to those areas. And but obviously, from a fundamental fundamental point of view, you know, they're clearly not going to do great. But obviously, a lot of it's in the price. So I, I think that right. that's the, the the point. And and tell us, you got this great. Uh, bottom checklist for when you're in a bear market, stocks are going down. This is a checklist you look at where if a lot of things are checked, as in they're green and they say yes, in this case, that means you might be close to, to a, uh, uh, a market bottom, i.e. it's time to buy. Um, yeah. So right now, I'll just, I'll just take a look. Um, so over six months of net selling, yes. Over 20% decline in the S&P ratio to the Dow Jones, yes. 
Uh, Kapok near zero. I don't know what that means, but it says yes. Plunge in consumer confidence, yes. Expectations over current are positive, yes. So those are things that would suggest it's the bottom, but then you have several other things that are not yet checked. So so tell us about, about this. Yes, yeah, just to clarify, the 20% decline is literally just a, a, the standard bear market definition. So peak to trough 20%. It's not oh, it's not the ratio of S and P. It's S and P five or Dow Jones. Got it. Okay, sorry. So, um, the so the checklist is basically intended to be when can I just close my eyes and buy equities and forget about it for the next two three years, right? That's kind of how I think about this. Is kind of when all the longer term things are lined up. And so I think the key point is that top line where usually our major bear market bottoms, the Fed has been easing, right? And because the Fed's been easing, you've had the curve all steepen, so you've always had curve steepening. And so that's the key missing piece uh, this time around. And I think that's a very critical piece. Uh, the bond rally reversal is, is a basically a similar idea, right? Where usually there should be a big recession scare where bonds rally, a huge fight to safety, and then you start to recover from that fight to safety because of essentially Fed easing, right? So that's why you have the initial bond rally and then the reversal, that's kind of what it is. Um, and then the 18 month RSI is similar to the car park. These are kind of using monthly measures. So it's looking at very, very long term oversold, um, uh, oversold conditions, essentially. So essentially what, what this is telling you is that yes, from the price action point of view, we are somewhat close to a, a bottom, but you're missing kind of the, the, the policy pivot, right? Well, you know, I said earlier, the, the policymaker panic, right? That's usually the safest thing because. You know, that's like a, a catalyst in a way. And yes, they might ease and then you start rallying. But then even if you buy in 10, 15% off the highs, I think you can feel a lot more comfortable that once they start, then the entire chain of events that that sets into motion sets up the market for like, you know, a good rally for the next, you know, two, two plus, two plus years, right? So this, this is right, a so for you to become yeah. bullish on stocks and for you to think that there's a market bottom, you need to see all of the things that are currently marked no in the 2022 category happen. So you need to see positive shift in monetary policy, aka Fed pivot. You need to see a bond rally reversal because bonds rally during a recession. And you need to see the RSI relative strength index uh, on the 18th month below 30. What is a Kapok near zero? Uh, so that's, uh, that's basically a technical indicator. I think it was like a priest a long time ago who invented it. And the idea was that he said, uh, he said bear markets are a little bit like a grieving process where, you know, you go through the various stages of grieving and what he noticed was that in his role as a priest it took people 11 to 14 months uh, to get over the grieving process so he essentially used 11 months and 14 months as inputs into this indicator to proxy for the kind of mourning process people go through when asset prices go down um huh. so that's a very long-term indicator but you know it, it's been quite reliable historically so again it's just it's just a a way to confirm uh, that prices are down Obviously, there's a limit to what indicators you can pick because we want to take this back to the 60s and there's not that many data series back to the 60s. So that's really why it's on there. But if you ask me, I would highlight the really important things to pick out is that you've had a sustained period of selling and then a, a fair policy pivot and then the bond market confirms it, right? That in my mind is, a, is an even simpler way to, to kind of go about it really. Right. So just to simplify your asset allocation, underweight equities and high yield. You like bonds, you like cash, and you like US rather than emerging markets. You like the dollar. Um, let's now move on to, let's see, uh, sorry. Um, Actually, the one thing that's changed now is I think we've gone uh, overweight gold. I think we've had an incredibly rare setup for some of our gold fundamental models. That suggests it's probably the start of a new gold bull market. 
uh, right now. Yeah. So the condition of the finding in place, I think a lot of our stuff wasn't, wasn't that positive on gold last year, but you're, you're kind of finding the sweet spot because, um, I think there's a misconception that gold's supposed to be an inflation hedge and it does well when inflation is high. But, you know, even in the seventies, when inflation was super high, you still had like 40% crashes in gold, right? And actually what we found is the optimal time to buy gold is when real yields are peaking, when policy rates are peaking, when the economy is about to turn down and when um, gold miners basically being underperforming the gold price for a while. That's actually a much yeah, better yeah. combination of what uh, that gold is going to do well on a forward looking basis. And you've basically just had all that lineup in January. So, uh, so I think, it, yeah, that's probably like an interesting shift right now. Even though inflation is falling. Yes. The key point is that it's not just about inflation. It's about real yields. It's about real yields and nominal yields and the economy. It's not just inflation on its own. It's just one of the pieces goes into it. Right. Okay. Um, so I just skipped through the section where you said uh, your view on Thailand, your view on Brazil. And if people want all of that specifics, you know, they should subscribe to, to Variant Perception. Let's talk about the bond market. If you think there's a recession, you think inflation will fall, you want to own fixed income, you know, risk, risk, credit, no credit risk, treasuries, other sorts of sovereign bonds, you can buy a one month treasury bill, you can buy a zero coupon, you know, 30 year bond. Um, where on the curve do you do like stuff? So I think it depends if you're a levered or unlevered investor, right? So if you're just a cash investor, at this point, you've, you've, you know, given where yields are, you've got quite a lot of protection from your carry, right? No matter which part of the curve you pick, right? Obviously, if you go for, if you go for lower, lower duration, you're going to struggle to, to like not make money, right? Cause if, right? Cause like, you know, if your duration is like, say two, all right, if you're buying like two year or three year, then you, you would need, you're going to pick up your, your 4%, right? For the year in carry. And then you would need like a, a really big movie yields for you to lose that, right? And capital from capital gains. So I think for the most part, if you're unlevered, it's, it's not that it's actually fine, right? It's not going to make a huge difference to you. I think it's a reasonable time just to allocate. The, the trickier question is more like if you're a lever player, if you're a swap trader, what do you do? Right. And this is why it's right now it's quite a tricky environment because if you're a swap trader, the, the carry for steepness is, is incredibly negative uh, right now. And, but. From a, a direction point of view, this is the time you should really be thinking about putting steepness trades on. So I think this is where the, uh, the yeah, time- yeah, yeah, sorry, sorry. Let me say, so um, if if you're a levered investor, you borrow short term to buy, you borrow overnight you know, in the repo markets to buy a 10-year treasury note. And if the 10-year is yielding 3.5%, but the repo rate, the overnight rate is 4.5%, you're losing 100 basis points annualized every single day. So it's a negative carry position, right? Yeah. And it, this, and, and, um, a lot of this is basically discounted into basically the, the swaps curve, right? So you can, so you can look at basically where, where spot yields trade, but you also look at where the forwards are. And basically there's a huge gap, right? And I think that's the tricky part when, when you ask that question today, because if you look at twos, tens, you know, one year, two or four, right? They're, they're all a lot, they're a lot less inverted than where the spot is. And I think that's the, the tricky part where I think timing is going to be quite important. So you, you almost need to, that's, you know, this is what, links back to what we were talking about earlier with the Fed, you almost need to like probably just sit on the sidelines for a little bit. Let's get a bit closer to kind of the February, March point, right? The point at which the the, the, the Fed funds and the CPI are going to cross. And then that's a much more comfortable point where you don't have to have as much negative carry to get your position on. And hopefully, right. I think that that in my mind is, um, it, is kind of what's going on right now. Like the, the basic short answer is you want to be starting to look at putting steepness on, right? Because you should be putting steepness on on the eve of a recession usually, because basically what's going to happen from here is 
the economic data gets worse. Eventually, everybody realizes, and there's a lot of stress, and then policymakers ease. Right. The, the, the tricky part is just the carry isn't great today. Right. Okay. So so now we're showing in this chart your fair market value for the ten year bond is one point seven or one point eight percent. Again, this report is from December of twenty twenty two. You're, you're it, maybe it's higher or lower now that we're recording in January. But um, so you, so and right now the ten year treasury is about three point five percent. So buying the ten year treasury note would, if you're right, would have positive returns. The only question is is when. So you know, do you what is your outlook? Uh, based on timeline of when bonds are, are going to rally, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, do you think they stay flat for six months and then explode higher? Do you think that they start, you know, grinding higher? Um, yeah. So f- first of all, um, that's the scenario for a recession, right? So that's obviously assuming. So the the way we get to that number is we input a lot more numbers that you see at the depths of recession into the model, and that's what spits out too, right? On the trailing basis, I think. Three is three to three twenty five is more where a fair value is based on trailing numbers, but obviously on the forward looking basis, assuming we're right on the on the re- on the recession, I, you know that, that's basically how low it can go. Um, in terms of the timing, you know I think you're absolutely correct, right? The the, the it's only going to move when policy rates move, right? And so that's going to be a that's why in the first half of this year, it's more you have the position on you probably won't lose that much. You can pick up the carry. Uh, but it's only going to have the big move once uh, the Fed starts cutting, cutting rates, right? And that that's going to really drive it. So, um, you know, I think that's the and, and you get the bull seeking, right? So, you know, basically the entire curve will yields come off. So, um, it, yeah. All right, so now let's talk about the, the, the long end. Let's talk about the shorter end. You said by June twenty twenty four, euro dollar call spread. Tell us about that. So this is a way to level up the recession view with cap downside. So, um, you know, if we're right on recession, then obviously, you know, by June 2024, there's going to be, you know, that, that's plenty of time for there to be evidence of the economy slowing down. And right now, obviously, there's not, um, you know, the policy rate is still discounted to be quite high. So you can level that up by doing a, a core spread. So you're effectively betting that the Fed's going to cut, but you'll get a very asymmetric payoff. Um, if, if they do come, essentially, that, that's the idea. Obviously, this this is moving around a little bit, but the idea is that this is a, a cleaner way to bet that there's a recession and that the Fed's going to cut, but you don't have the to deal with a lot of negative carry things, right? This is just like a you just pin the euro dollar to, uh, twenty June twenty four future. You just buy the core spread wherever it's trading, right? And that's your fixed amount you pay up front. And you don't have to worry too much about you know the, the carry and, and the things swinging around, and you just and you just try and hold it, and you just hold it. So that if there's a deep recession, they will cut and it will just pay out. So that that's the basic idea here. Um, you can see right, on the chart, right? The implied probability that will be at two percent in the mid of 2024, uh, you know, it is is very low, and so that there's scope for that to go up. Right, and since writing that, I think that trade has worked well, which makes me nervous because you know that's like close to 200 basis points of cuts are hiked in f- from the terminal rate in the spring of this year till the end of 2024. Um, so it's just like how much ex- more you expect it to go. Um, uh, so you're, you're betting against Powell basically by doing this trade. And uh, yeah, if you, if you don't know about this trade, I mean, uh, I would say don't do it. You know, like it's a, it's for an it's advanced trade for advanced investors. Uh, I'm not an advanced investor. I've never done a trade like this. So just a, a warning for my audience. Um, now let's move into commodities. So you, Tian, and your firm, Variant Perception, very early for calling for a commodity super cycle 
during 2020, when everyone was so bearish and thought that interest rates would go to negative 2%, you pretty much stood alone. I mean, there were others calling for a commodity super cycle. And that has turned out so beautifully, Tian, that now everyone thinks that oil is going back to $100. Uh, what do you think? Well, I think that, that was the, the time when I last uh, came on the podcast, right? When, when we said, you know, this, you know, it's time to get out. So I think that, that yeah, has, you're, uh, you're right. That, I think that timing is being uh, pretty good. So, um, you know, I think the message remains from what it was, you know, whenever, whenever we spoke last summer. Um, structurally, from a capital scarcity point of view, clearly the bull case remains for, you know, oil, oil and gas for energy, but you just cannot ignore how severe the cyclical headwinds have been. Now, obviously, with the China shift, we are clearly on high alert to see if some of the models start to shift, right? And, and you know, as you mentioned, you know, you know, a lot of industrial metals are rallied quite a lot off the lows. And there's clearly some other elements with, you know, potentially countries trying to, you know, uh, just stockpile, build up inventories, right? So there's some of those elements in place. So I would say, you know, right now it's a bit more neutral. Again, for me, to really get back on the trade, I just want to see some signs of relief on the growth front, right? Whether, because right now, basically the growth outlook basically can't get any worse. Now, the good news is if it can't get any worse, the next marginal move is it's going to get better, right? Like you can't have US, Europe, China all in recession and all the LEIs being so bad. But the problem is I just don't know the timing. So that's kind of what I'm waiting for. And, you know, it's, and obviously everyone's very focused on China. So I'm trying to see when our China models start to shift. And right now it hasn't shifted. So I'm just waiting for that as a potential catalyst. And then that'll be a sign to try and revisit. revisit. And right. Okay. So, and so this chart uh, that we're looking at right here is key. It's the capital scarcity cycle for energy. So when the uh, the, the bottom is capital, but that's capital abundance. Uh, the top is, is capital scarcity. So there still is a scarcity of capital in the energy sector, that, but that's on the supply side. On the demand side, you just think there's demand destruction and stuff like that. Yeah. My question is about China. When China, people say, oh, China's reopening, they're going to be using a lot of oil. But then I also hear people saying, but they've been buying oil and their their uh, inventories are very, very high. And I actually have not been able to find, I'm sure the data exists, but I haven't been able to find that Chinese inventory data. So how, how do you think um, China's reopening, if it does happen, um, will affect oil demand? Yeah, I think you're going to struggle to probably find that data given how set it's probably quite geopolitically uh, a sensitive topic, but you know, if you take a step back, you have to imagine they're going to be stockpiling, right? If we're in an environment where China and the U.S. are obviously have uh, poor relations and there's going to be a lot of geopolitical competition, it's going to be important to secure resources, right? That's going to be needed to keep your country stable, let alone for whatever you know competition you want to do for you know, semiconductors, renewables, whatever else, right? So you have to imagine there's a lot of stockpiling going on, um, whether, you know, even though we probably can't see the data. Uh, but like I said, on the reopening, um, even just looking at the U.S. experience, the, the tricky thing is that in real terms, you know, things might only just get back to trend, right? Like if you look at things like, you know, transportation, actually we're a bit below trend. Right, even in the US after so long on reopening, because obviously there's, there's legacy effects, people work from home, right? Some of those things, you know, the expenditures might not actually get back up to the same level. So, um, yes, it will be higher, but it's probably, as of right now, probably not enough to support the overall kind of demand picture for oil, right? What I would go back to is that um, policy stimulus chart, well, we talked about earlier, where the US uh, policy stimulus, and this is across both credit and fiscal policy, is so negative 
that at the moment it looks like it's it's going to overwhelm the, the the positive China uh, data so far. So you know if that changes, then then that that's probably going to be more optimistic for oil. Uh, as of right now, it hasn't, but you know that that could change in the coming months. Tian, is is it safe to say that? If your view, which is increasingly becoming the mainstream view on inflation, that inflation will continue to fall at a you know, brisk, uh, a, a fast pace, um, if if your if your view isn't right and inflation goes back up, is it safe to say that the most likely reason it does go back up is because there's another oil shock or another natural gas coal shock? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's anyone's guess, right? For sure, given that given the supply constraints. Then yeah, if, if there's a if if there's a move, then cl- clearly you know it's inelastic, right? That that can move. Um, you know, there's risk from food prices going up. I mean, right now, you know, all signs that food prices are peak should roll over. You know, fertilizer prices, a lot of these other things linked to food inflation. You know, food manufacturing costs, right? A lot of those things are rolling over. But clearly, with something like food, it's going to be weather dependent, and we've not had the best um, growing season, right? So like the the USDA put out surveys and like soil moisture conditions and all of these things. And there, there's been quite a lot of bad readings. So, um, you know, there's some stored up stress for food potentially, right? But obviously the tricky thing is you don't know about the exact impact because it depends on how much inventory there is and then whether the inventory for food gets drawn down. So yeah, I would say if it happens, food probably more likely than energy, just given weather disruption. Um, on the goods side, it's, I think it's pretty unequivocal, right? Most of the science for goods is rolled over. And then services will be the one thing where labor shortages continue potentially. So that service inflation, you know, wages just hold up even if the economy slows down, right? And, you know, I, I'm in the UK and, you know, based here, we've, you know, there's been, we've just had strikes constantly for the past few months, right? You know, even though the, the economy is doing badly, you know, interest rates gone up a lot, people are still striking. And so, and there's, you know, just shortages all the time. So that, that's something that again can prop up wages potentially. So th- those are probably some of the moving parts, but mm-hmm. you know, the, basically you have to break down the cyclical versus structural. I still think most of the structural factors suggest that we are in a more inflationary environment, but the, it's just more the cyclical factors in terms of the relief versus last year just looks so big that you should get more of a, a, a down wave this year in, in inflation. Tian, what is a view that you have on asset allocation that would surprise me given my knowledge of your economic thing? So, you know, you, you like bonds, you like the, if you told me you like dollar, uh, you like bonds and you don't like equities, I could presume you'd like the dollar, right? Because it's a risk off thing. But is there something that's sort of, you know, weird or, you know, most people don't follow that you're either long that would, is kind of contrary to your macro view or you're short contrary to your macro view, you know? Well, actually, I mean, on dollar and gold, that that is probably worth talking about because that's probably a lot more nuanced, right? So on dollar, technically, dollar does historic, well, statistically, it goes up during recessions, right? But the reason it goes up is because there's safe haven inflows into the US because it's a safe haven and there's inflows from Europe, from China, you know, wherever else. The tricky thing this time is that safe haven inflow already happened last year, right? Because Europe and China went into recession before the US. In, in normal cycles, it's the U.S. that leads and then causes a recession in the rest of the world, which then sucks money into the U.S. as a safe haven. But because China chose to lock down themselves into a recession, right? Obviously, the war drove Europe itself into more of a recession. So they already had the recession first. You had the safe haven money inflow into the U.S. So you probably won't get as much of a dollar move uh, rally this time, even if there's a recession, just because it's, it's kind of already happened. So I think that's also why 
technically, you, you probably don't want to just go out and mega short the dollar right now, but it probably won't actually do that much, right? And if the dollar doesn't do that much and we have all these things on gold, then actually being on gold makes a ton of sense. But aren't you pretty long? Don't you like the dollar? I thought it said overweight. Yeah, it's a medium overweight. But if you read the text, I think the point is technically you should be, but I would say it's a low conviction and there's a lot in the price because of uh, the dynamics I described. So you're saying it's a, oh yeah, yeah I, I see what you mean. It's it's not a yeah. bright green. It's it's a moderate green. It, and why about why un, why do you like emerging markets? Uh, emerging markets, sovereign, uh, sovereign yeah, bonds, sovereign, for example. Yeah. Typically, you know, typically, just, typically, like when you're in a recession, South African bonds tend to do quite poorly. You know, so why why now? So it's more linked to the fact that in pockets of EM, they front loaded the hiking cycle uh, in 2020 and 2021. So they hiked much earlier. Their real yields are much more uh, positive. Inflation lead indicators in some countries like Brazil have sharply rolled over. Obviously, you know, that was our top trade, my favorite trades last year, although I think it's quite consensus now, it feels like. I mean, it, you know, <laughs> I think it pitched quite a lot, you know, quite a lot of places, but that doesn't change yeah. the dynamics, right? Inflation rolling over. Uh, hiking cycles are peak. There's room to cut. Um, and the best time to buy bonds is when the economy is doing badly, but starting yields are high, right? That's the perfect combination because there's room to cut. Um, and so I think in, you know, yeah, in, in Latin, in Brazil, right? For example, you know, it's looking like a very attractive setup. So yeah, that, that's why I think EM bonds, you know, you're going to, you're going to get the, uh, the benefit of, of the cuts basically. Um, so you said the Brazil, long Brazil, you thought of it and other people who I respect also, also thought of it, but now it's become consensus. Like it's a, it's a victim of its own success. You know, um, Brazilian stocks, I think they had a, one of the best returns for countries in terms of the equity market in 2022. What is, what do you think is the most overrated macro opinion now or that what's the most crowded trade, you know, whatever, however you want to put it. Um, I, I don't know. Do, do, do you have some prompts from, from, I guess like soft landing, mild recession, that that feels like a that feels like the, a majority opinion right now, mild, yeah. mild, yeah. Yeah, well, well, soft landing. I mean, sort of four months ago, if you asked me about a soft landing, you know, everyone who I talk to, who uh, you know, I, I I know and have respect for their opinions of most of most of them, with the exception of a handful of people, thought soft landing was just you know it's something you say if you're on TV, but <laughs> it's no one actually believes in the soft landing. But I think the economic data, you know, I mean, at least in the U.S., has been very resilient. I mean, the unemployment rate's at three point five percent, and it's you know continued to even go lower. Um, so yeah, I mean, why why is the soft landing un- unlikely? Do you do you think? I think it's be- I think this comes back to the leading versus lagging data, right? So for example, the unemployment rate is one of the most lagging indicators, right? So obviously, if you plot it against recession bars, you'll see the unemployment rate peak like basically after the recession is over, right? So so people mm-hmm. keep getting fired even when the economy is turning up again. So I think that that's probably um, a part of it driving the divergence. Um, but yeah, I, I would say it feels more like soft landing seems quite a, a, a popular opinion. So therefore, um, equity is the bottom, so you should buy S&P. I feel like that's actually becoming a lot more prevalent as a, as a theme. Like I said, I think it'll work for the next month or two because the flows were so bad. The outflows are so bad in December. Uh, but, you know, if the economy data deteriorates, as we think, by, you know, March, February, March, then obviously there's more downside from there. How bad were the outflows in December? You know, I'm just observing the S&P 500 like everyone else here. I don't, I don't have these, these flow data. But, um, you know, I mean, the S&P started selling off seriously shortly after the, the Fed meeting in the middle of December. But I didn't notice anything. Str- like, how, yeah, tell me about those outflows. 
Yeah, so I mean, we're, we're tracking, so there's a couple of ways we track flows, right? One is we're looking at just the, you know, the dollar value traded in up and down stocks every day within all the indices, right? And you can look at the cumulative differences. That'll be one. You can also proxy for what is a speculative outflow versus patient capital, right? So obviously when patient guys, um, trade in the market, what, what tends to happen is they, they tend to sit in the bid, uh, sit in the order book in the, on the bid offer. And then when lots of volume goes through, the price doesn't move, right? So I, so you can observe this because essentially intraday liquidity goes up, intraday volatility goes down when that most of the because they put, they have a lot of limit orders in. Like Warren yeah, Buffett they, told yeah. his trader, and by the way, I like this. Warren Buffett has one trader who does all this stuff. Yeah. I like that. They just sit um, there, right? So tons yeah. of volume will trade and the price won't move, right? So you can observe that. So you can attribute that the trades, most of the trades that day to the fact that there was a lot of patient money in the market. Right. Conversely, when more speculative guys come in the market or people who basically have shorter term horizons, they need to get their trade on. Right. So they're going to cross bid offer. And obviously, even the act of crossing bid offer means that, you know, they're causing more, more intraday volatility, uh, when they trade. Right. So that's how you can differentiate. So I think it's more, um, when you look at it in September, not only dollar value wise did you see a lot of outflows, you also saw quite a lot of speculative selling in terms of the price action. Why it didn't. So that's why. You know, on our models, you know, you, you're getting down to like a contrarian level. It wasn't as bad as June or October, but, but, you know, close to it. And then obviously end of the year, you had, you know, some, some of the buy, buy signals trigger on a lot of the tech names. So I think that's why the, the, the bear market rally can potentially go for a little bit more. But obviously as that sucks, the, the flows back in, like already this year, I would say we've recovered more than 50% of, of the outflows already. Right. In terms of the dollar notional value. So, you know, we're probably getting not, not far away from then sucking all the money back in. And then obviously from there, then no more marginal buyers again. And so, yeah, that, that's probably the point of more vulnerable, uh, equities. Right. All right. Tian, before I ask my final question, yeah, I just want to say that people should follow Variant Perception, your, your firm on Twitter at VRNT Perception, uh, variantperception.com. Yeah. Tell the audience, tell me a little bit about, what you offer clients and you have different tiers. I know you just uh, have, a, have a sort of a new platform that you're excited about. Uh, yeah. So, you know, we think of ourselves as essentially uh, offering an investment portal to speed up, you know, your investment process. So, um, you know, we offer a lot of our tools and reports via the portal. So you can look up our lead indicators, you know, keep on top of what, which of our signals are triggering. Um, you know, the, the company has been around for more than a decade, right? So we've been building various models um, over the past decade. So it's just accumulated models for the economy, for trading different asset classes. And so, you know, at this point, we think of ourselves as more just a, um, you know, like a, a full stack kind of model. So there's somewhere you can go check, right? So, you know, if someone pitches you, I, I don't know, like a short on a European paper company, you can go on that, you can go and look up, uh, you know, what does VP's capital cycle, longer term model say? Is that a good long term sh- short, right? You know, someone pitch you the euro dollar trade, you might want to go look up, uh, you know, inflation indicators. Does that make sense? So I think it's more a, you know, I, I think of it as hopefully like a resource, um, to answer a lot of, um, investment questions. You know, th- you know, the portal essentially came from us figuring out a better way for our internal analyst team to use our tools better and to access it a bit easier. So, um, yeah. So essentially I would describe it as we, you know, we basically write reports based on our tools, but we also provide access to all the tools. And so um, that, that's kind of the, the full service, really. Um, you know, we, we tend to uh, target ourselves in more institutional clients. Um, yeah. And yeah, follow us on yeah, Twitter. Well, 
there we go. Uh, Tian, my final question for you is, I think it's about the biggest disappointment of, of trades in 2022. I say the biggest disappointment of 2021 was being long gold. Biggest disappointment of 2022 was being long volatility. The S&P 500 was down 20%. Uh, I mean, probably a little less than that but, but, uh, in 2022. Um, but the the VIX, um, you know, sometimes it went up to high 30s, but it immediately went back down and uh, volatility really did not perform as an asset class. And also with the VIX, remember, you can't, as you know, of course, you can't buy the spot VIX. You have to buy VIX futures, which are frequently in contango. So like if you look at UVXY, you lost a ton of money. So volatility was not a good hedge. Options on the index did not do well because of, uh, I guess, um, uh, low correlations between assets. Obviously, some options on individual stocks like Carvana did extremely well. But um, yeah, do you think the VIX, uh, as we approach into a recession, will finally start performing or will it continue to fail to be a diversifier? Um, well, I think on a lot of the, the more structural models, I, th- I think the upside is, is fairly clear. So typically VIX and credit spreads are highly correlated, right? They basically move together. And so what typically leads credit spreads is fundamental deterioration. So when corporate cash flows go negative relative to um, to the stock of their outstanding, that usually leads to um, credit spreads widening. So that's basically been happening. So th- that's kind of suggests fundamentally the VIX sh- is biased higher. Um, but obviously in terms of dynamics trading day to day, yeah, I mean, your guess is good as mine, right? I- I've seen lots of theories last year, you know, from, you know, all the, you know, the, the negative gamma is pinned here, it's pinned there, people overhedge, but, you know, who knows what the truth is, right? But I would say from a fundamental point of view, things are a lot more in place now for to support a, a wider credit spread, which is basically uh, the opposite side of the coin to the VIX, right? So that's normally how I think about uh, think about the VIX. Um, right, I, I think that's a really good point. And I would say maybe I was a little bit too harsh in describing volatility as a quote failure, you know, as part of a well-balanced portfolio. You know, you always have things that do better than, than others. Um, well, Tian, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. And thank you everyone for watching. Yeah, thanks for having me on and uh, yeah, speak soon.